Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every Monday, to get your week started off right, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. Though I've spoken to some great orchardists through this podcast, many of them are growing cold-tolerant trees in far northern climates. But I wanted to get a perspective on running a holistically-mannered orchard in the tropics to explore how the beneficial interactions between some of the most prized tree and perennial products in the world can be grown in a way that fuels the restoration of these incredibly biodiverse and robust ecosystems. Now, I've known quite a few orchardists from back in Guatemala where I used to live and work, And I'll link to those interviews in the show notes for this episode for a wide perspective on the topic. But in this interview, we'll take a look in the cloud forest of the Ecuadorian Amazon to see how the team at Mashpi Artisanal Chocolate have brought their piece of land back from being a degraded and deforested pasture to a thriving rainforest cacao plantation that has brought back the biodiversity to their forest through a method that they call analog forestry. Now, in this interview, I spoke with Alejandro Solano, who co-owns and manages Mashpi Chocolate as the resident reserve ecologist. Apart from knowing in depth everything that has to do with the cultivation of cacao and working directly in its production, he's in charge of planting other species that accompany the cacao trees and ensures their health throughout the whole ecosystem management. He also conducts ongoing research on biodiversity and is a naturalist with a sharp eye and intuition. Along with helping to manage the business and land, he also guides visitors and gives workshops on the farm project and the reserve. Now in this interview, we start by defining analog forestry and its defining aspects. From there, we explore the larger vision of cloud forest restoration that the cacao production is merely one aspect of. Alejandro also explains how the preservation of the genetics of his cacao is helping to preserve the biocultural heritage of Ecuador and its history as well. Towards the end, we also go through all the steps of producing some of the highest quality chocolate available, from seed all the way to the chocolate bar. Now, my mouth is watering just thinking back on this discussion, so I'll hand things over now to Alejandro. Hey, Alejandro, thank you so much for making time to be with me today. How are you doing in Ecuador? Hello, Oliver. I'm doing okay. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me to be in the interview as well. 
Hey, the pleasure's all mine. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the intricacies of restoring a rainforest while also producing world-class quality cacao. But before we get into all of the details of how you do that, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your personal background and just how did you get into growing cacao as a way of restoring the native forest? Okay, uh, folks. Well, my name is Alejandro Solano. I am originally from Costa Rica in Central America. I study a little bit of ecology and sustainable development. And while in university, I met my Ecuadorian wife, Agustina. And soon after we finished with classes, we decided to come to Ecuador because there was a lot more to do here than in my home country in terms of conservation, restoration, and so on. So when we got here, we started to work with the family that lived in a small reserve in the Cloud Forest. And we diversified the farm with tourism, with shade-grown coffee. And after about three, four years working there, we had the opportunity uh, with a local NGO to get uh, access to a new piece of land to create yet another reserve. But this time more in the foothills uh, in the beginning of the Andes. So we started in a farm that used to be pastures and we saw the potential of doing a different type of restoration. And in this one, we decided then to start work with uh, polycultures instead of monocultures. And in this one also involving a very important plant for Ecuador as it is cacao. That's amazing how you've gotten basically to work in all of these incredible places having started out in Costa Rica. Now, before we dive into more of like your personal journey of transforming the landscape, on your website, you talk about how you're practicing a type of forestry called analog forestry. And I've heard of a lot of different methods, including uh, syntropic farming and things along different management techniques for forestry. Could you tell me what exactly is analog forestry? Okay, yes. It's a very interesting tool. It's a way of planting trees and other plants, not only trees, but uh, in a way that you use the forest as a model. So historically, uh, around the world, we've uh, seen different types of agroforestry from the simplest in modern times, which is just one timber tree next to a plant of corn. And very simple, just repeat that in many lines and you have uh, an agroforestry system. But it's very, very weak because it's only two species and it's more prone to pests, it's uh, very poor in diversity, in food and so on. So some years ago, uh, a folk from Sri Lanka, with a PhD, Dr. Ranil Senenayake, uh, started to study the food systems, the productive food systems of the countryside of Sri Lanka. And he realized that the farmers were putting a whole lot of different species together. In that way, uh, working more effectively, using the land not only on the horizon, but also vertically. So Analog Forest is a tool that over the years he has developed and shared around the world, now in more than 20 countries. And well, we start by going to the forest and having a look at it. And we see the structure of the forest. And then we come to our plot where we maybe needed to be restored. And then we try to see what elements, what features are missing. And then 
planning little by little a design, we start filling in the gaps with plans that are uh, useful for human beings. So we look for a tree that has a big crown, as is in the forest, but that, for instance, produces nuts that we don't have to climb the tree to get, but the tree would shed for us and we just pick from the ground. And little by little, there is also the creation of uh, not only a structure, but ecological functions. So that also helps us because we have the cycle of nutrients on site. We try to avoid bringing uh, external inputs as much as possible. And it's very useful also that little by little, this structure and this ecological function brings in also other wildlife that is important for things such as the stability of the system. So in, in this way, there is uh, less uh, chances of pests and, and problems that attack the crops. It's a really cool tool. Uh, I think there's a lot more to be said about it. But uh, for now, as an introduction, I think it's, it's good. You can look up for more resources online on analogforestry.org. Perfect. Yeah, no, that gives me a really good introduction into this. And so you mentioned how the analog forestry method gave you an opportunity to look at the damaged ecosystem that you came into as a designer and identify what was missing so that you could replace some of those pieces with plants and ecosystem elements that suited your production model. Can you tell me a little bit about what was missing when you got there and what you decided to put in, including the cacao and where it fits in with that forestry model? Okay. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, well, first of all, the plots that we started at, they used to be pastures. So basically there was grass with a few, you know, trees on the edge that here in the tropics are used as live fences. Say uh, guayaba, what in the U.S. called guava fruit was there and maybe a few other it's, uh, very secondary forest species, very abundant uh, things. but nothing much than that, maybe one or two trees in the middle, isolated. So if you compare it to the forest, the forest is uh, multi-layer. First of all, here in the tropics, very important. Uh, maybe five, six, seven, eight sometimes layers from the highest 30, 40, or 50 meters high tree to, to the shrubs and the seedlings sprouting at the base of the big mother trees. So we use something very important in analog forestry, and that is uh, the concept of natural succession. So when we want to bring the forest back and we want to bring analog forests, so we have to be patient, first of all, and start with the species that can uh, take the, the light gap situation, the open country situation, more efficiently. So in order to do this and taking into account that we had uh, also compacted soils because of the the poor practices and the management of the cows that are common here. We also had to work what plants to use to soften the soil. So first of all, we started planting uh, a lot of banana trees because banana trees grow well in the sun. They have big leaves. They can protect the, the soil from the rain so that there is no more compactation. And uh, together with the bananas, uh, we put a lot of uh, legume trees. Legumes are very important because they fix nitrogen in the soil and start getting energy back in. 
And together with that, we also put uh, a lot of cassava. With cassava is a root that you eat in the tropics, uh, known as yuca here locally. And that is very important because as uh, also likes the sun, grows well as it is growing, it's also growing the roots underneath and that is helping to decompact the soils. So in a very brief way, we use these uh, three main plants uh, just to help with uh, catching as much light as possible, transforming it, and at the same time, uh, setting us free from having to use what is very common worldwide, which is herbicides. Many people use herbicides because they think that there is bad weeds. I don't think, or we don't think there are bad weeds. We think there they are bad informed farmers sometimes. That is a mm. bit different. Sure. And so, so in, basically you were accelerating the recovery of the forest by putting in these interim species. Did that also help you to make sort of a shorter term profit that kept the financial aspect of waiting for longer term perennials like the cacao and other tree species to mature and keep the farm viable up until then? That's a very good point, and that is why we like analog forestry, because although uh, it's a long journey, it's a beautiful journey, and in each of the steps of the natural succession, you can profit from different crops. Mm. In the beginning, as you were saying, we start with the sun-loving crops, which are also a lot of energy, which are needed by uh, us, the farmers, to start setting the, the, the plots, you know, to start working, and in the initial stage of our project, we didn't have anything to do much with cacao processing or selling because cacao takes three to four years to produce. So in the beginnings, we were selling papayas, we were selling bananas, we were selling cassava, we were canning. The very first product that we processed here was a heart of palm. Heart of palm is uh, interesting because it's one of the most uh, interesting plants in the area because many people manage this plant as monoculture but we for the first time here put it in a polyculture and in the early years we harvested the heart of the palm we processed it and that gave us the income to keep going now those uh, palm trees are eight nine meters high and they're producing fruit we're eating the fruit and then it's interesting to see in this way that um, how the same plan over time can give you different benefits also. Yeah, that's incredible that you've really managed all of these successional sort of transformations leading up towards a more mature forest. So tell me about kind of how you transitioned or utilized that energy early on that you were talking about and the, the income needed to propel you to what you were building up to, which is an agroforestry model based around cacao as your main production species. How have you worked towards there and kind of what stage are, are you at now? Well, something very important for us has been the use of uh, our own farm-made uh, organic fertilizers. Yeah? Together with planting trees, which is very important of uh, the greatest diversity as possible, as your local forest indicates, uh, it's important also to take into account that fertility has been washed here because of the rains, taken with the rains into the rivers and, and taken downstream, downriver, far away. Um, the tropical soils are very fragile. They have evolved for thousands of years 
under the shade of trees. The microbiology in that forest, in this forest, sorry, it's uh, very, very rich. Uh, so we have done a practice that is very good for restoring soils, which is the capture and reproduction of local microorganisms. And that we use on a constant basis. Every month we apply by uh, means of a pump, spraying to the plants and to the soil microbiology constantly to try to bring back uh, this memory of the forest into the plots that we are restoring so that whenever there's a leaf that falls down, whenever there's an insect that dies, that organic matter is quickly recycled. It's not uh, lost, it's not volatilized into the air. It's uh, used on site. And throughout the years also using uh, manures fermented with water, with molasses, we have learned that, uh, first of all, for many years, people have um, become very, you know, kind of, um, how to say, a little bit too relaxed or, or maybe just kind of comfortable and they have think about fertility as something they can buy on a store. And fertility that you buy on the store is derived from petrol and it's not really healthy for the soil or or for the plants or for whomever decides to eat what those plants produce. So we're trying to cut that and by using the local resources, we see how with putting a lot of biomass, pruning the plants, putting them on the soil, putting the microorganisms to transform that biomass into nutrients and to cycle with diversity, with associating species that help each other at the, at the root levels, We've seen how the system has been transforming. We're here for nearly just over 10 years now, from pastures now to areas where you have uh, 25, 35 species in each plot uh, at all different levels from grass and shrubs, from middle high trees, some canopy trees, and some are starting to grow above the canopy, some emerging ones are, are popping up too. So it's uh, been very rewarding over the years, actually, to see how this work, which is a continuous work, uh, you work with the rhythms of of the succession, and that's uh, where analog forestry is very efficient at. I can only imagine how much of a joy it must be to constantly watch this process evolve and see how much the landscape has changed from pasture back into a lush forest. Now. Let's focus on the production farming aspect and where most of the income from the farm is derived, and that is the cacao. Now, cacao and its derivative or its product as chocolate, as people kind of know it the best, these days comes from a lot of different sources, even though it is native to the Amazon and to Central America. And you have opted to use a heritage variety specific to Ecuador. Can you tell me about how you have selected for the cacao nacional from Ecuador and, and what benefits it has for being reintroduced into this system in its native environment? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, cacao is a biocultural heritage to Ecuador. There is some research, uh, anthropological, archaeological research that found uh, remains of cacao in vessels 
in an archaeological site in southeast Ecuador in the Amazon that dates back to 5,000 years ago. So the cacao has been around. Um, we don't know exactly, but there is a, a theory that says that cross the Andes in southern Ecuador because the Andes are lower passes there in the south, only at 2,000 meters above sea level and so. So when the cacao crossed the Andes and spread into the Pacific, it started to colonize and, and be dispersed by humans into different microclimates. So that led to the evolution of different varieties of what we now days call nacional. The nacional is well known worldwide because it's the most aromatic cacao and one of the most flavorful. And the reasons is because we are in the equator, we have the the warm current from El Nino coming from the Galapagos Islands. We have the cold current of Humboldt coming from Peru and Chile in South America. And we have the, the Andes with the volcanoes, with a lot of good soils that have fed through the watersheds, the foothills and the lowlands. So all this together makes it a very unique product of Ecuador. But uh, also it has been very important in the history, in the creation of the Republic of Ecuador. Uh, the money that, that made that possible actually came from the exports of cacao back in the days. Uh, it is nowadays a bit worrying that a lot of the cacao nacional is being replaced by hybrids because of the big industry demands, uh, because they want to plant more and more and more, and then the small scale farmers are pushed to change because they say that the cacao nacional produces less and so on. But uh, we took that uh, challenge and the opportunity then to prove it uh, the other way. And so when and how do we select? Well, we go any time of the year, We've gone to farms of small-scale farmers, wherein we have um, now our dog barking. Sorry, <laughs> no, no problem. Uh, uh, we have looked into the varieties that we identify as national, and we have talked with farmers. We have secured some uh, plant material, and then we have brought that here from our closest neighbors, and we planted it. Uh, the way that it used to be planted in the past, in orchards that had many fruits, but in this uh, case, we are using the analog forestry strategy to do it. Yeah? With this, it has proved very effective, and now we have some data on productivity, for instance, and we know that our plots are producing more or less 575 kilos of dry seeds per hectare per year whereas the national mean of cacao is 300. Yeah? So we have almost double you know, the national mean. And we're doing this in a province where 80% of the land that was dedicated to cacao nacional has moved completely to monoculture of hybrids. This is frightening because not only we're losing the cacao nacional, its uniqueness, but also all the, the food sovereignty that comes along with the orchards of cacao. Yes, nowadays maybe you can say some farmers maybe, you know, producing a little more cacao per se, per parcel, but our data puts it the other way. Anyway, if they get more cacao, then they have to sell cacao to buy bananas, 
to buy papayas, to buy the rest of things that they used to have in their system. So this is where we are trying to put a big word out there that the cacao nacional is not only about cacao. It's about the rest, it's about the food, it's about the ecosystem services, water, good soil, stability, biodiversity, and all in all, uh, a well-being for, for the farmers, for the land, and for the consumers of the end products. Sure, just a generally more resilient model, not only for the landscape, but for the businesses and for the security of the people as well. Correct. Now, tell me about the careful breeding process that the Cacao Nacional uh, requires in order to preserve and continue to develop the genetics and how you promote genetic diversity in your program. Very good one. Uh, yes, well, Cacao Nacional is a tree that if you go to the jungle in the Amazon, you're going to find that it's under the shade of other trees. And when this happens, uh, when you look at the ecology of the plant without human beings involved, you'll find that the cacao are visited by squirrels, by monkeys, by insects. When it's ripe, they devour through through the, the out um, peel or the, the outer part of the fruit. And then you eat part of the pole, which is very sweet, sometimes a bit of the seed, but this one is bitter. So they discard and they left uh, the pot on the ground. When the pot is on the ground, collects water from the rain. And because it's under the shade, it develops there, the water collected there, a right uh, temperature, a right acidity. And it comes there, the, the minuscule fly that pollinates the flowers of cacao. It's a tiny fly. This fly cannot live on full sun. This fly cannot live where they put herbicides or pesticides, it dies. So the pollination of cacao is linked directly to a very small and sensitive insect. When this insect uh, is thriving well, it can move around 30 meters or so from the area where it's breeding in the cacao shells. And so what we do is when we harvest here, we leave the pots in different places. We don't collect all the fruits and then take them to a cover area to open and process and then have a big bulk of uh, cacao pots or shells that we don't know where to put. We do it on site and at the same time bring back those nutrients to the soil, allowing them to decompose there with the work of the microorganisms. So that's the stage one. Then when we selected the plants that we wanted to bring here, we selected a big diversity of the varieties of the Nacional because they told us, the neighbors here in the valley, that cacao does not grow well here. So we're looking for this diversity or in this diversity, maybe one, maybe two, maybe more of varieties that would grow well here. In the end, all grow well, but at different times of the year. And what we are seeing now is that they are open pollination plants because they are not uh, hybrids of course and this has led to very interesting that we now have seeds that we are spreading to neighbors they are planted and it has a, a stronger national genetic and that is already adapted to this climate so now we have uh, a number of farms linked to the project and also very interestingly uh, having good results with the production that's fascinating and a really noble and important work for the bioheritage, like you said, of Ecuador and the history 
being preserved in this uh, genetic information and continuing to develop. I mean, this is, this is some of the most important work of our time as production models are increasingly kind of siphoning off the, gen the genetic diversity in these important crops. And, you know, microbreeders like yourselves are really kind of on the front lines of making sure that some of the most important history of the diversity and the genetics of our natural world are being preserved and, and get to continue their story. You know, it's not just a matter of holding them in sort of a, a glass jar and looking at them from a distance, but letting them express their full potential as life and, and continuing to, uh, I guess, evolve in these processes that are so necessary in an adaptation to changes in climate, changes in microclimate, and continuing to spread to other parts of the country and to the world and recolonize those areas where they've now been abandoned. Now, what other crops do you grow in your agroforestry system? You've talked so much about all of the diversity that you promote. And I know that cacao certainly is not the only one, but you've also moved away from some of those sun-loving initial plants that helped to get the system restarted. Can you talk about the plants that create sort of symbiotic relationships with the larger system? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, the number of species, I, I kind of lost track already, but it's about 250 species planted in, in five plots that we have. Well, no, now we have eight plots, sorry. And, and it keeps, keeps adding up. Uh, we're very lucky to be in the tropics where many things grow. Uh, we're also doing um, a great deal of work in trying to bring back some crops that have been forgotten, what we call the ancestral crops. For instance, we have some, some roots uh, that uh, their use date back to 9,000 years ago in the Pacific of Ecuador. And these are what we call yereng. Yereng are in relative of uh, what uh, people know as heliconias, nice tropical flowers that are visited by hummingbirds, uh, sometimes confused with birds of paradise. So we have plants like that. We have plants that are also vines. We plant a lot of vines. So we use also the plants that are already standing there as our support species for the vines. And we have, for instance, here in the foothills where it's too hot and you cannot grow potatoes because potatoes like it cold and are more of the Andes. But we have air potatoes. We have a vine that produces a tuber up in the, in the branches that when it's ready, it just very gentle. It would let it loose and you pick from the ground. You can boil and eat as potatoes. We have uh, other more well-known uh, ginger. We have also uh, what you call turmeric we call uh, different here. We have a great diversity of uh, relatives of cacao. We have nine different cacao relatives of the same genus that can be used for uh, the pulp that you can drink as juice. One famous from Brazil called Cupuazu, which is kind of now known and kind of in vogue as a, a superfood. And it's interesting that we talk about superfoods because all the food that is grown healthy without chemicals is a superfood to me. Uh, in a way, we also have here a lot of other trees. Uh, we have the tree that is related to cacao but comes from Africa, the cola tree, from which the original recipe of 
of cola or Coca-Cola came from. Mm -hmm. We have here uh, ice cream bean trees that are very interesting. We call guava. These are uh, on the family of beans and they have large pots with very nice uh, texture, pulp, whitish and soft and sweet. But this, uh, talking about how they plants help each other, is one of the most helpful plants because as all legumes on its root system, it has a symbiotic relationship with the bacteria. And we have here that, for instance, in the roots of the legumes, there is nitrogen-fixing bacteria that uh, anchor into small pockets that we call nodules, are like little apartments, little houses where they live. And then the plant gives it a place where to live, and in turn, the bacteria feeds the plant uh, by providing and capturing the atmospheric nitrogen and make it available for the plants. Understanding that this element is more or less like fuel for the plants, so they need this, is vital for the growth, and that way these plants can grow happily, produce a lot of leaves, a lot of branches, a lot of flowers, fruits, and all of these that you can constantly prune are put back into the soil to form again a rich and loose soil that is very fertile. This is just to give you a few examples. As I said, we have uh, a good uh, big list of uh, fruiting trees, but we concentrate not only on, on fruits, but also like to look at, at the wide range of possibilities. So some are timber trees that we are going to have to use because we believe in bioconstruction. Uh, we have also from the same area, we can get nuts, we can get medicine. And so there's uh, a whole lot of spices that we have, pepper, vanilla. We have uh, a good diversity to keep well entertained through our lives, I think. It's amazing. It's a perfect example of how if you take care of the abundance of the ecosystem in which you live, it'll take care of you and then some. You know, the, the abundance that's coming out of the biodiversity and the, you know, the sort of stacked layers and the care that you've put into each one of those layers, <clears throat> just like you've mentioned, has given you everything from uh, an economy to food to medicine to, you know, beauty and everything else that one could really want to have an enriching life. And it comes from understanding and taking care of the resources that you have at your disposal in your area and not putting sort of human desires beyond the needs of the ecosystem and the health that's created for all different forms of life there, not just focusing on your own. Correct. Very important indeed. So let's talk about the business aspect of this, because at the end of the day, you have to find a way to get these products that you mentioned out to market. And when there's too much diversity, you can't really focus on anything well enough to scale it up to production. But you've done a great job about kind of keeping this in-house. So tell me about the process of creating small batch artisan chocolate at your workshop on the site. Yes, uh, well, it's very important, first of all, to, to say why uh, we are doing the, the chocolate itself. It's because when we came here, we established not to produce chocolate, we established to have a small reserve to protect uh, one of the most threatened habitats in Ecuador that is part of a bioregion called the, it's funny, uh, it's called the Choco 
almost as chocolate, but yeah. it's just called choco. And this area it has suffered over the years from extensive deforestation, uh, mostly the lowlands because they want to plant more bananas and hard to farm and large extensive uh, industrial monocultures. And so we established a reserve with the aim of protecting, but we saw that there were some areas that were intervened and we saw that what was causing this situation was the model around us that many people are doing just one thing at a time. When you do a polyculture, yes, some people wonder, then how are you going to scale it up? How are you going to do it? And we decided to, in the very beginning, we were naive enough to think that if we sell the seeds, we were going to get enough from the cacao beans to run the reserve. But we found out that there was a big uh, problem there, which was the middleman. And the middleman in cacao in Ecuador, it's whom is keeping the most uh, and is not really helping at all. So we said, how can we do to to surpass, to to be able to, to go beyond? And then it was that we had the idea to start an artisanal workshop on site here in the reserve. Uh, next to the plots where the cacao grows. And we are pioneers, as far as we know, in transforming the beans on site, right next door to, to the restoration plots. And over the years, it has been a big challenge too, because we need to establish infrastructure, we need to have enough uh, of power to be able to run the machines. The machines are uh, a big uh, challenge itself because Historically, it's all being produced in large scale, so we have to create more or less our own small-scale artisan machines. Uh, over the last 10 years, Ecuador has been experiencing what we call now the chocolate boom. There has been some cacao boom areas in the past. Now we are moving to a, a big different reality. And here on the farm, uh, we practice, we did all sorts of different trails until at the end we came to more or less uh, eight years ago, seven years ago, to the final product we have now, which is actually a number of products derived from cacao. And interestingly, uh, if you have cacao alone, you can create chocolate bars, you can create cacao butter, you can create cocoa or cacao powder, but then that's it. Maybe, yes, you can have chocolate bars in different percentages that are it's kind of trending now, like say 65% pure cacao, or 80% pure cacao and so on. But uh, in the analog forest and in the food forest systems that we've been able to establish, we have more potential because we have all the other companion species. And so with the same cacao, we are now producing uh, 15 different products because we are adding with the chocolate, some of the fruits, some of the spices, and some of the nuts from the species that are growing together with the cacao in the restoration plots. And I think that has been one of the, the key things that we didn't design to start with, but that in the, in the trail we learned about, that if you play in favor of diversity, diversity pays back. Not only monetarily speaking, but as you were saying earlier, it's just the joy of seeing all of this happening and feeling really grateful that it's actually taking place and that you can see that is such a um, beneficial system 
overall, no, for, for all the beings involved, from microorganisms to final end, con final end consumer. So it's uh, been a hard work and it's been at the same time very rewarding. Certainly, and it, it seems to me that one of the big advantages that a smaller operation that's diversified and really invested in the ecosystem the way yours has may not be able to perhaps compete with larger producers on quantity of scale and you know low prices that come from that, but where you can compete is on high quality, very, very healthy products. And the other things that you're able to do, such as cutting out waste or any unnecessary plastic in the packaging and sort of the ethics of how you do business that can create a niche in the market for loyal and dedicated customers so that even though you're not selling at massive scale, you can still you know, invest in the community, invest in your workers and reinvest in the projects that are creating a resilience in the ecology as well as the economy of what you're doing. Isn't that right? Yes, it's, it's a, I think it's, it's a keystone to start by changing the way we, we conceive things in life. For instance, we, we have it clear that we are not here for competition. We don't want to take over the market. We don't want to grow endless because what we have as a legacy from others that have done that is in terms of how we see it is, is negative for the environment, is negative for you don't share. We want to have many more small scale projects like this. We don't want this to be the only one. We want the diversity to express, but healthy. We don't want the corporations to have all the, the saying about what the consum consumers should or should not eat. I think it's a big moment nowadays that we're experiencing this crisis to actually take the time to do a deep thinking about it. How we as consumers, we all consume something, can make a big difference when we select what we want to eat, what we want to put inside our bodies. Because there was a big saying uh, many, many years back by one of the big thinkers from the, the Roman times, and he's considered the father of the of medicine and Hippocrates, he said, let the food be your medicine and let the medicine be your food. Many people nowadays is, is concerned because of the health mm -hmm. and how this affecting overall um, all of our daily activities and the situation we are living. Uh, but uh, it's also important to see that nowadays the majority is, is putting a lot of attention in food because food is what is going to give us a good uh, health, not only you know, feel, feeling physically well, but mental also is very important. The more nutritious the food that we eat, the more minerals, then the better the brain can work and the rest of our organs do. So it's like doing an analogy. If you want to do things good out there, then things are going to be working well inside also. Yeah, it is much of a more holistic way of looking at every aspect of the business, the ecology, your own well-being, investments in the community, and every aspect is considered as a part of a whole rather than a separate portion that needs to be focused on and optimized the way so much of our businesses and production models are focused on right now. And with that in mind, Alejandro, how can people get in touch and learn more about your farm and your cacao products? 
Well, uh, as of now, because of the situation, we can uh, say that uh, you can look at our website. We have a website called Chocomashpi, uh, C-H-O-C-O, -O, and then Mashpi is the name of the valley where we are, the river, M-A-S-H-P-I. Um, at that page, you can see the products uh, that we have. We also have a Facebook, Mashpi Artisanal Chocolate. You can find us and follow us there. We are putting videos there about the daily activities. We are always expressing the love we have for diversity and, and the respect we have for the cycles of nature. Uh, we are constantly letting people know not just about the products, but everything that comes together with it. Um, those two channels are very important and we'll be sharing also uh, contact for those who are interested in the products in the US. Also, we have now established a good collaboration there and some of the products are already there, starting to be distributed. And in the future times, we would like to have you come visit. Over the years, we have had uh, held here workshops, uh, tourist visits to our facilities, uh, farm and, and chocolate farm tours uh, were very useful for us, as well as uh, an environmental education tool, also helping uh, the most direct of commerce. Uh, many people now is uh, interested in fair trade, and I remember when we were hosting the groups here, we always say this is direct trade. So this is from the producer on site, zero kilometers chocolate bars to the hand of the consumer. So this is what we would like to get back to, of course, uh, now is not possible, but those are uh, the ways in which you can be in contact with us. Marvelous, that's so exciting. And I really hope that not only people take an interest in this form of you know, direct to consumer sales and profits that go right back into developing the health of the economic models and the ecology that you're working with, but also that in the future, I get a chance to come out and see you guys. And Christine Crash, who was on the podcast before, who put me in touch with you and spoke so highly of your operation. I really hope I get the chance to visit both of you guys in this region of Ecuador and come back after, man, it's been about six years since I was in Ecuador. And I, I really hope I get the chance to come back and visit. Sure, it would be great. And here also, um, I take the opportunity to briefly mention that over the years, we've uh, develop good relationships with some neighbors, a good number of neighbors in the valley. And with them, we establish a local uh, association for uh, nature tourism, ecotourism. So when the groups come here, they not only come here, but they have the chance to visit neighboring farms as well, that they're doing their different projects. The community itself, there's a beautiful swimming hole in, in, the, in the area around the community. And yeah, all in all, we have a, a good, very friendly valley here that is uh, happy to have visitors anytime. Wonderful. Well, look, Alejandro, thank you so much for taking the time to explain your wonderful project and share so much of your knowledge with us today. I really hope we get a chance to keep in touch and hopefully see each other in person sometime. Sure. Thank you, Oliver, for uh, allowing this interview and thank you, everybody, for uh, staying good way of keep sharing good stories all right take care we'll, we'll be in touch okay have a good one bye
All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.